Welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. It's blue and yellow till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. So we've got an action-packed fake news special for you today, listeners. Oh, fake news. How would you fake define news. that? So that's interesting. So we've been exhaustive in our way to research that, and we, did, we came up with, with this way of researching it. Alexa, what's fake news? Fake news is a form of news consisting of deliberate disinformation or hoaxes spread via traditional news media or online social media. Digital news has brought back and increased the usage of fake news, or yellow journalism. The news is then often reverberated as misinformation in social media but occasionally finds its way to the mainstream media as well. That's an excellent definition. There we go. Does that Thanks, mean that Alexa. Amazon now own our soul? I, I, I don't know. Or your soul. It was your flat, it was your echo. This is true. We're all in this together. We are. We are. Um, so we'll see how many times she gets actually activated in time. So we have, a, as, we, as we say, a packed show about, about fake news. We've got not one, not two, but three dial-in guests today. So we've got local campaigner, an activist, I think she might describe yeah, herself yeah. as, yeah. Um, Ivy Burrows. Followed by her, we've got Craig Stadler, who's actually a CTO of a company in the States where they've designed actually a different search engine that uses different algorithms and he'll explain all of that because technically um, that's way over my head yep. um, and then to tail off the show we've also then got Tom Sykes who's uh, one of the editors of local media sensation Star and Crescent um, who'll also be talking to us about fake news and the importance of that. Now did you know that your fake news isn't a new thing? Now we're at first surface? See, there are. If we're asking for audience participation, half the half the two people that are actually watching are saying that it's it's a Trumpian thing. It's not. Is it? No, it's not. Ramesses the second, mate. Thirteenth century. If you go all the way back, there was a battle, name of which escapes me, and your Ramesses the second created a whole series of of your hieroglyphic paintings, which showed him absolutely beating the snot out of his opponents and being generally splendid. When in fact, he took a bit of a kick in. So it does go away back. Um, you know, again, you, you can't can't pin this one all on Trump. It's been done a few hundred years earlier by your Egyptians. Pharaoh. Hey! It's marvellous. But so, I suppose... I'm, it, I'm not going to walk like an Egyptian. No, I don't think you should. So, um, yeah, if you look back at... I, I guess it came to prominence probably a couple of years ago when, you know, the Trumpster basically started shouting the word fake news, fake news at any story that wasn't to his to his liking or pro the Trump regime. Mm. Um and I I wonder whether that was the was that cause or effect? I see I don't know. I mean I'm sure it was it was in uh, public knowledge before then. Um yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing, is that um, what one person calls fake news, that might just be because they're facts that they don't like. Yep. Um, so there's there's also kind of that accusation kind of gets levelled, but there's also then actually the, the, the whole kind of question, and, and this is where our guests will help us, mm. is that uh, do we have more of it? Or is it just that we're aware of it more because we communicate digitally and, and um, you know, uh, information can spread at the speed of light across the planet now? 
Whereas previously, that wouldn't have been the case. And therefore, probably the only people producing fake news, if you kind of go back kind of a, a pre-radio era, would have been, you know, a, you know someone with, a, with the ability to print um, leaflets and pass them around. Yep. Yep. So does the title fake news actually kind of encompass a lot of things? Or actually, quite specifically, probably what, what um what our guests are going to tell us is that no actually specifically it's 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 a particular thing so we'll, we'll let them yep. tell us absolutely what, what that what that definition is uh, and how that feels but we've got that packed issue today yep and i think if you look at it you know there's the famous quote isn't there which is one of the issues of the internet is it's almost impossible to verify the sources of quotes abraham lincoln um yeah okay that was yeah and that's the other thing is that well, there are there's some people love a bit love a good meme. Yep. Um, but some also the other thing that seems to have disappeared is that where, where does satire end? Where does satire and parody end? And where does kind of truth? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because there are some things that that people might put out that are obviously intended to, or they might well intend them to be satire, but actually are taken really really seriously by people. Mm. So, um, so that's. You know that that that's another thing is that the person disseminating the information isn't in charge of how someone else reacts to it or interprets it, but they are in in, in charge of what they say and how they say it. So, um, and again, yeah. with it not being a new thing, and uh, listeners of a certain generation may remember the great headline. I think it was around the late eighties uh, of the uh, now discredited Daily Star. Um, which had the Freddie Star Ate My Hamster as their headline, which was the tale of an ex-partner of Freddie Star, who said, well, at some point, the, the, the comedian had placed her hamster between two slices of bread and pretended to eat him. And the that hamster died some months later, as hamsters do. Um, but the headline was Freddie Star Ate My Hamster, which clearly he didn't. Yeah, that. Um, so have we basically just allowed stuff that we quite obviously either ignored or pointed out as stupid, like the you know the B fifty two found on the moon stuff? Yep. Um, have we now kind of, to some degree, of as that kind of entered the mainstream? So we're, count, we're counting down to the to the allocated time that we've no, got Ivy joining that's us. That's marvelous. No, and, well, I think the other thing is is for me the bit that I'm more worried about. It's not Freddie Star ate my hamster. It's B fifty two on the moon. It's the subtle use of hyperbole to inflate or sex up a story, and you see this quite often with a clickbait headline. Yeah. So something really bad has happened, lots of really bad things have occurred, and mm. you click on the headline because you think, ooh, this sounds like a juicy story. And if you actually critically read the story, it, it, it's often a, there's nothing to it. Do you know, mm, or but somebody the bears yeah. no correlation to the actual content, and and often we see this on social media that they get reposted and then amped up even a little bit more. Mm. Um, you know, there was a story on Portsmouth politics this week, a three-year-old story about there being a list of Tory ministers that had been had sexual allegations against them. That again, it was posted three years ago with two people named and thirty-four unnamed. And that then suddenly became, oh, well, yeah, they're all at it, aren't they? And, oh, this, this is a disgrace. And it's like, well, it's from an unnamed source. It, it, it's, yes, it's a very serious set of allegations that need to be properly investigated. But we've gone very quickly from somebody put together a spreadsheet of what they thought some people might be wrongins to, well, they're all at it, aren't they? And we should hang them. And you think, oh, oh really? 
go back and read the story. Yeah, it, um, it, 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 is, it is kind of interesting. I mean, it, there's, there's that as well, where people just, you know, clickbait. Uh, um, but, you know, the, maybe uh, Tom can speak about kind of the funding model for mm. um, yep. journalism now. Yep. means that um, there isn't money actually for decent journalism, and it encourages news organisations to fund themselves with those sorts of articles because that's what gets attention and then fill their website with loads of downloaded content that's not what the star and crescent does but that's nope. what some you know some other local news agents might news news outlets uh, might do but it it, it, it in, a, in a funny sort of way again with the with the with some of the other stuff that we've seen recently is that if what we're teaching these organisations is that they work mm, and that it. they get attention by doing it, we're at, in the same way that we, t you know, when you, when you're a parent, if you teach your children that by behaving badly, they get a reward, they get a, you know, they get a sweet, or they, get, you know, they get their computer game or whatever, then you, um, then what are you? Why are you surprised when actually they learn that that's yeah. how they need to behave in order to get attention? So, um, we are now are we at the point where we need to we need to bring Ivy into the room. Absolutely. So. Let's. Oh. Is that? Oh, hang on. Oh. Oh. Hi, Hello. Ivy. Hello. Hello. Ivy. Good Thank evening. You. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. Yeah. It's so, lovely to be here. <laughs> so thank you for being the first, um, the first of our of our packed special guests. Um, so fake news. What is? What does it? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? And what's your interest in it? Okay. So. Um, I've been I've been listening to you two um, chatting away on on the screen here, and I actually want to um, kind of make a point that I don't I don't think the first example of propaganda was the example that Ian gave. I think I think propaganda and the rewriting of of history and the misleading information that goes along with it has actually been around since the dawn of time itself um, and the dawn of the written language because. Mm -hmm. Within language, there is always a form of almost deception, um, uh, because a word isn't the meaning of the word. A word is how we consume the word, and the, the meaning that we get to does vary sort of based on that. Anyway, going off subject, the main interest in fake news that I have, well, I, I just generally have a massive interest in narrative and the formation of narrative. and. Um, the misleading narratives that are present um, have always been present within our society um, have been historically used to cause a great deal of harm um, and to sway public influence. Um, obviously, in, in recent years, um, we've got examples of um, obviously like what Trump is doing, um, Cambridge Analytica, um, Boris Johnson's connections with it. Um, what one thing that I found very interesting in my research was the fact that Cambridge Analytica and its links with Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon's external links with um, Breitbart imply that the fake news that was produced by Breitbart and then spread by trolls were actually um, part of the campaigns attempt to manipulate public opinion and the trouble is public opinion is something that can be led propaganda has historical roots 
and so, there's a lot of evidence. Sorry. No, so so just to clarify that in the game, are you talking specifically about the about the leave or remain vote in terms of the involvement of Cambridge Analytica, or is it something more widespread than that? Oh no, this is this is far far more widespread. Um, and just let me find the correct link. I've got several links loaded up on my PC. Um, yeah, and in in this sort of um, so lots of companies and lots of countries and such have done research. And and this one right here says we identified fake engagement purchased for seven hundred and twenty one political pages of fifty two official official government pages, including the official counts of two presidents, the official page of an EU um, European uh, political party and a number of junior and local politicians in Europe. Um, the vast majority of the political manipulation, however, was aimed at non-Western pages. Um, so it is not just an issue that is local to the UK or the US. It's yeah. actually a global issue. Mm. Um, and I guess my question to you would be, do, do you think that this is a, you know, we've touched on whether it was my lad Ramesses bigging it up in the uh, 13th century, yeah. or it was earlier than that. Do you not think we have, you know, marketing and influencing has always been there to try and get you to buy products or, you know, choose this washing powder because it washes your whites whiter. Are we just not, I, are we just not at a stage now where because of the ability and the reach of social media, People are just getting more sophisticated and clever at misdirection. Oh, you're absolutely right that um, the intelligence and the abilities of those who intend to misdirect have vastly improved. They've got tools and access to a incredibly substantial amount of data and are working actually hand in hand with a lot of the platforms um, and various governments that actually provide data um, and then obviously they've got the use of algorithms and experts and um, sadly and, and a lot of people don't like to admit this but there are there are troll farms there are people um, whether it's in a specific location for example the ones that have been proven in Russia or yeah. China or wherever um, or people working from home being paid in, in Bitcoin um, to actually spread false information information that is um, created by a company, given to news people who then report it as though they were um, the ones originating the information, um, and then putting that out to the audiences. It's happening on multiple scales, and the manipulation within social media is on every single social media platform, and typically they get away with it. Well, I think the the, the danger is, isn't it, or the risk within this discussion is that it, it's that uh, and again, we touched on it in our preamble. It's that degrees of fakeness, isn't it? it, it it's the the out and out lie it is often quite easy to spot. It mm. it's the disguised, supposedly impartial. And I think you know we all know that there are certain quote unquote news websites that you know that if you go and look at Guido Fox as an example, you are not going to get a fair left right balance. The same as if you go to the London Economic, they are partisan cheerleader sites um, the trouble is oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 but i think the the danger is that and again it comes back to the sort of echo chambering people are are often going to sites now that that reinforce their mm. confirmation bias um you know which just makes those beliefs stronger and stronger and the, i think that the, the real challenge is for those people who are let's say not 
greatly partisan. How how yeah. do they try and consume a, a balanced diet of news? The trouble is, when it comes down to it, um, it, it's the choice of those who are propagating the information to analyse whether it is truly factual or whether it is um, misleading or designed to mislead an audience. The trouble is there is an incredible amount of incredibly rich, incredibly right-wing um, oligarchs, effectively, who are manipulating social narratives. And there may be a grain of truth in, in the information, but mm -hmm. as you said, like hyperbole, it is then taken to a, a dislogical conclusion. Um, like, we know for a fact that Murdoch's dad was a eugenicist. And if you look within the text of his newspapers, you find the same hateful and bigoted views being justified. And the main, the main censorship that, that I think happens so often is Okay, so we used to have broken Britain, right? But now we've got Brexit Britain. It's it's, it's basically the same thing, but with uh, with bigger stakes at hand. So broken. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, Ivy. Sorry. So, so the interesting. So th these are. It's a really interesting point. But I, the, the thought that occurs to me is that probably actually the people disseminating this sort of stuff. Part of what they count on is that most of the stuff isn't going to get cooled out. Most of the people that do the calling out aren't actually going to be listened to by most of the most of their intended audience because at the end of the day it just it just lands as an emotional message because it's something that they can feel or be, or believe to believe to be true so therefore they're not inclined to be you can't rational ration someone out of a rationalize someone out of a out of a, out of a view that they won't rationalize into so it the, the, the thing that I find kind of really worrying we talked last week about the whole kind of thing about. Opposing parties actually calling each other liar, liar all the time about mm. when they when they say or do something that's that's um, you know when they slip up when they make a mistake, um, and mm. you know at the end of the day people should be held to account for for what they say and do, but do you think part of the part of what the disseminators of fake news are counting on is that if, if all the opponents of those messages do is basically say no that's not true that's not true, that's you know that's a lie that's not true that's fake it in an, in that Trumpian way that just reinforces the message because it's not about being wrong or right. It's about um, emotion. Yeah. It's about the emotion and almost yeah. about, um, I don't care if it's true as long as it's the so, people, the so people it's my that story. is upsetting well, well, are yeah. the people I want to be upset. I would like to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, no, um, I, I think, I think you've hit on some really good points and there is definitely an incredibly emotionally manipulative narrative that is behind a lot of fake news. And, um, I mean, what I see a lot is the idea that, that it's only the left that get offended and only, only, only the left that, that have arguments that rely on emotion. Yet I, I do constantly see people on the right also getting offended and also having arguments that, that are very personal and emotional to them, but they it's just because they have different values or, or, or different um, uh, different things that they get offended by that they don't necessarily see the ways in which we are manipulated. And I think the best way is um, the best way to say is what I'm reading right or wrong is to try and look both at the side you agree with, the side you disagree with, their sources, 
and also the context in which it is placed yeah. because mm. um this, the simple amount of fake news that is being pushed out constantly means it cannot be fought the fact is in in small groups and in bigger groups on reddit wherever there are people who are being paid to push a certain narrative to manipulate it in a certain way and um the the issue is being able to stop that because the more that is happening the more people are shilling well uh, the less it it's possible to fight. Well, I think the, the you know the issue you've got there, Ivy, isn't it? Is the genie's out of the bottle? There, there is, and unless you get to a model, and I guess it's the question then as to who censors the internet. You know, you have a situation now where, uh, and again, having thought on this, the the, the only real answer uh, has got to be, you know, that old buyer beware, because I I don't think, uh, I, I can't think of a practical way that you could ensure that you know everything that comes through your news feed or your instagram or your twitter feed it, it can be vetted for correctness you know how many times right. how many times have we seen I, a story posted that you know we, we've all had a dig around into and found there's not really anything there but it, it's mm. taken it's time out of your life you'll never get back well yeah that's it is it, it is a lot of effort to try and fight and argue with these people and it's really disheartening for example, mm. when you can prove something. Oh, oh, hello. Hello. Sorry, that's me moving the phone. Sorry. You still okay. There? Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It, it, it's really disheartening. For example, the other week in Portsmouth politics, someone came to the group and posted an event, and posted it as though they were just a normal member of the public, but in actual fact, they were working for a company that um, has very uh, dodgy roots. And they were using Portsmouth politics directly to spread their event and get more momentum around it. Now, well, even though that was called out, the mods welcomed it with open arms. Well, I and think, I found that really disheartening because... Well, so the only thing I'd chip in there, Ivy, because I, I, I know the person personally who posted that post, and, mm. and there is an element of it was posted as an event. Um, and yes, that group is right leaning, but you know the group Stand Up to Racism Portsmouth, who are you know on the left of politics, regularly post their events on the, and you can say, well, you know, are, are they are they being transparent that that effectively, you know, I think Simon McGrawian runs it, um, you know, is he being transparent saying, well, this is a good thing you should attend when it, it is effectively his group in the same way, Jack Ross with the turning point uk posted their event yeah. right? and i think in those instances you know again you, you that those those ones for me are much easier to spot in terms of they're obviously coming from a position of bias than something yeah. which is is perhaps more subtle than hmm. than you know just calling out which side you're on um the cent i, I want to make just one quick point the yeah. center is not immune to bias or um, or fake news within it as well. It's not simply just a left thing, a right thing, a far left thing, a far right thing. Um, the centre is not immune to hegemonic norms and the ever-changing narrative and conversation. And it's that conversation that is being manipulated with far right money. Okay. Um, 
there's so much more to kind of open up here. We've we've kind of made a really difficult task for ourselves by packing in so much into the into the show. Um, our next caller is trying to try to get to, through. Is trying is trying oh, to okay. get through. So, <laughs> so, so no, 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 no. We, we we wanted to try. You know, at the end of the day, we um we want to give people a chance to to speak and kind of raise their concerns yeah. and have their say. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting. So, so the interesting thing that, that hopefully Craig's going to talk about in a second, if, if hopefully he'll call back, um, is that he's talking about ha actually some different tools that people could use um, yeah. to to actually help them. Because because you're right in the sense that um, some of the you know all of us say you know the, the thing is obviously easy to say, oh, go do your own research. Um, I haven't got time. I've got a job to do. I've got work. But what you what you find is that the way the algorithms work on things like Google, or if you're trying, you know, if you watch one thing on YouTube, for example, it will send you kind of a plethora, you know, it will recommend a list of other things to, um, you know, that are similar, because that's just basically how that search works. So yeah. um, Craig, who's our who's our next guest, um, has has something to actually say about that. So that's an interesting point for us to think, and it, and it's I think okay. it's a good view for you to think what you've said there about looking at alternate sources, look at the one you agree with, look at the one that you would naturally disagree oh, with. That's great. And, and I'm going to... Yeah. Ivy, thanks ever Ivy, so much. We're going to wave Can goodbye. I have a quick goodbye? Can I just say, just like a quick outro? Um, um, we really are struggling. This is the oh, third okay. time okay, Craig's called. Okay, thank you for putting thanks up Thanks ever so much. No worries. Thank we're... you so much. Cheers. Answer, can I answer the phone? Craig. Hello, Craig. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm so sorry about that. We... Um, our, our poor timekeeping. We had a really interesting chat with our previous guest, so it was um, we were overrunning a little bit. So I, I'm sorry about that. So um, oh no problem. So um, so Craig, just wondered if you wanted to introduce yourself and how you kind of link into the whole kind of conversation around around fake news. Yeah. So essentially speaking, I've, I've been a, a programmer for a really long time, and about a year ago, I started the. Um, the project of setting out to find out what the, the video search kind of landscape was about and realize that YouTube was pretty much dominating everything, but there were still a lot of players that were still out there, um, Vimeo and Dailymotion and Metacafe and that kind of thing. And no matter where I would go to search for videos, I would pretty much just find YouTube. So to try to get visibility to a lot of these other players, I decided to invent my own video search engine uh, to cater more toward uh, non-YouTube content. And I guess the way that fits into this conversation about, uh, you know, the title of your show with fake news has to do with giving people uh, multiple outlets or multiple options to find information, in this case video, so they can make better uh, decisions and better opinions. So in terms of that, Greg, do, do you see, you know, obviously you're phoning in from the, the US at the moment, do, do you think that that almost monopolization of that, that video market it is leading to a skewed narrative? Well, I mean, I think with any uh, tech endeavor, so to speak, they make certain decisions about how their platform works, whether it's censoring certain types of, of information or the way that the algorithm works so that it chooses the things that you see, that kind of thing. And there are definitely good and bad points about both of those. Um, I guess the, the danger for me is when we have only one of anything, so to speak, it really limits uh, you know, the, the diversity of the things that you're going to get back and puts everything in control of that one institution, mm. uh, which is, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing. I, we have so much variety in so many other things at this point, consumer-based-wise, um, but uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case with, uh, you know, with, with, with YouTube and with video, so I'm trying to 
help bring attention to a lot of the other uh, options that are out there. And how difficult is that to, to do? Do the, do the existing players that were, you know, 10, 15 years ago were, you know, were, um, you know, nimble startups that start, you know, were in the back of someone's garage. How, how difficult a world is that to kind of, to get into now that those players are really established? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple pieces to this. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is I've, I've been a developer, a programmer for about 40 years now. Not that anyone has to have 40 years experience, but certainly having a lot of years ex of experience or like a really good team helps, but that requires money kind yep. of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a, it's a really, really, you know, big, possibly insane, crazy endeavor for me to even be doing this. But I think that that's maybe a part of the reason I am doing it is because it is such a big undertaking. That's the reason that nobody's ever done it. And I think it is necessary. And a lot of people are, are you know, kind of championing the cause. So it helps me understand that there is a need for it kind of thing, so to speak. So I guess to answer your question, first and foremost, it's difficult because if you were putting money into a project um, as, as a you know, venture capital person or something like that, you probably wouldn't do it in this endeavor because YouTube is so incredibly big. But on another hand, I'm funding the, the project myself and I'm doing most of the coding, so that helps in my case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so is it difficult to do? Yeah, I would say it's extremely difficult to do. And you know, adding all the different video systems in, because you know, like I was saying earlier, our goal is to provide diversity. Um, we've uncovered about 63 different video platforms other than YouTube. Right. And so picking those out, finding them, even in different languages, that kind of thing, and adding them into our search engine takes time and, you know, a lot of effort and that kind of thing. So on and, the tech, tech landscape, I wouldn't say it's necessarily easy, but possible. Well, I think the other thing you touch on there, which is something which, which again, will be spoken in our preamble, one of the biggest challenges now is that uh, people expect everything for free on the Internet. So, you know, to actually, you know, for an endeavor like yourself, which is looking to you know, provide something which is perhaps more diverse, more inclusive. The question is, you know, how how does how do you turn that into an endeavour which, as well as being noble, um, puts right. a crust on the table? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So, when the project started, um, I initially was thinking of a couple of uh, you know models of advertising and affiliates and things like that. There's a lot of things that have come out recently in the past five years, like like Patreon, where people can actually subscribe to somebody's, you know, uh, content, that yeah. kind of thing, uh, because they really believe in, in the, the person that's producing it or the organization that's behind it and that kind of thing. So I think, uh, you know, the landscape's kind of changed a little bit as, as far as, like, how the end user can actually really support the institutions or organizations that they believe in or even individuals, that kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of given way to some of the models that PDVid uses. So when you do searches on the video search engine, one of the models that we have is an affiliate link with uh, eBay and Amazon, uh, for example. So if you're searching for something in relation to a political subject or something like that, it might show you books. Yep. So when you buy those things off of eBay or Amazon, we get credit for that kind of thing. Right. Uh, we don't pass any information off to them as far as your location or anything like that. It's just a keyword-based thing. And then another one would be, we do have a Patreon that we just started. We're going to start producing videos on how-tos and reviews so people that really like what we're doing can contribute to the, you know, the server costs and that kind of thing. And then we actually have merchandise, too. So because the site is actually modeled after my cat, Petey, um, you can buy PDVid t-shirts and uh, stickers and photos and things like that, too, as well, and we'll be expanding on that. 
So we're going the route of uh, traditional merchandising too, as well, so people can support, uh, you know, the the the, the, the support the brand essentially by doing that, and then get something in return. Everybody loves merch. I yeah, love, yeah. Love. <laughs> is is there is there? We're not going to do the spaceballs quote, are we? We're not the no, you know, no, the, no. The, the, the um the, the the parody of Star Wars with the whole thing about merchandising, but it's it, and and that's a because because there are lots of different ways that you can get you know crowdsourced funding and you can get people you can get communities um, excited about about different projects, but I guess some sometimes that's about actually them people finding you in this in the sea of all the other stuff that, that everybody's trying to put in front of mm. them which um which which is a bit of a challenge so just to make sure craig that we uh, our listeners and uh, and we can go and have a good look at the the name of your site again is oh so the the video search engine is pdvid it's p-e-t-e-y-v-i-d.com um, if you think about somebody that you know that's named peter sometimes people call him pd yep and my cat's name is pd so what it's, style uh, of cat? And then vid, which is short for video. Yeah. Sorry, what's that? What style of cat? We've got we've got two lurking about in the uh, in the studio, <laughs> and nice. and my um my hundred pound guide dog. So um, uh, and what style's your cat? Uh, he's a ginger, basically, oh, he's an oh. orange tabby. Yeah. Everybody loves a ginger cat. This is excellent. So, <laughs> well, Craig, um, superb, and and best of luck with your endeavour, and um. Yeah, we will we will have a look and mm. um, and uh, yeah, hopefully if you do the t-shirts in a significant enough size, <laughs> so I might I might see what I can do. Um, yeah, he's um, yeah, uh, it's it, it, it's an in, it's an interesting thing because uh, one of our previous our previous guests, Ivy, was was talking about kind of the need to to you know um, research and to kind of check things in um, you know look for look for them in in such a way so that you can try to try to figure out what is and isn't isn't the um, isn't the kind of true story so having a t- having a tool like yours w- would kind of help with that because people so often end up basically sitting in an em- echo chamber with with you know ever higher walls being built around them or just seeing an endless stream of things that just reinforce what they've already watched mm. um so right yeah. I, I think you know that's a really that's a really important and powerful thing to um to be to be wanting to do and, and especially to kind of put yourself out in that in that way to to look at yourself um, is there is there anything that kind of motivated you to do that specifically, or just you were just sit dissatisfied with how the existing setup works? Well, I think for me, um, because I, I I don't know why I didn't pay attention for for a great number of years. I just kind of assumed that everything was out there for me, kind of thing. And so when I started doing video searches on you know Google Video and on Bing and on DuckDuckGo and these types of things through their video section, I found that all I was getting was YouTube. And so a, a big part of this had to do with my personal dissatisfaction of not being able to get things from different places so I could make kind of an informed decision, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then in the wake of, uh, you know, I, I would say certain types of censorship on different platforms, um, I knew that there were other platforms that had been coming out to allow kind of a, a more uh, diverse platform voice-wise kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely wanted to include those two as well. And so there a couple of different reasons, but I think the big reason for me was personal dissatisfaction and just wanting more out of mm. the video search experience. Yeah, and and that's good. I think I, I think you're not alone in, in feeling like that. I think a lot of people are frustrated with the sorts of things that they see or kind of not knowing where to turn to to get a to get a more balanced view of, of those sorts of things. So it's handy having having a tool like that available. So we'll when we um, 
when we edit up the the podcast to put it out on SoundCloud, and when we put out the um, the material, when we when we put that onto Facebook and out, and out on SoundCloud across, we'll we'll um, we'll uh, make sure to include um, a link to your um, to your stuff there, so that we could, so that people can uh, can follow on through with that. But um, it's really interesting. Thank you so much. It's it is really valuable that to know that someone's actually doing that. Yeah, it'll be the change you want. It'll be the change you want to see. So um, no, top work, Craig. Thank <laughs> awesome, you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for the discussion. No, you're you're more than welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you for for putting up with our our little bit. We've kind of overpacked the show a little bit, so I'm sorry that we um we had a bit of a problem um yeah, with with the call at, at the beginning, but we. Uh, but thank you so much for persevering and um, and giving us your time today. No problem. Thanks, guys. Take Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Bye. 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 You've got to admire Craig's yeah. just the the out there. So it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna give Google a, a bit of a scuffle. That is, I mean, if you, I, I've always liked the go big or go home, and uh, no, it's 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 fascinating stuff there. And yeah, I think Ivy made some great points in that. You know, it, and again, it's a shame we didn't have a little bit more time, and maybe we'll pick this. I'm sure this subject isn't going away anytime soon. No, um, you know, it, it, it's that balance between, you know, what, what is what is subtle misdirection, and again, you know, mm. we touched on. I think was it last week or a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the, you know, I, I, I my popularity in China fell to an all-time low when I suggested that there. You know, approach to managing information and quote unquote news was perhaps not as not as open and fair as it could be. But but conversely, their their ability to um, their ability to do the things that, to be honest with you, lots of other um, um, political setups would struggle to do. Hmm. You know, they're effectively kind of shutting down kind of areas or you know manufacturing or you know taking basically deciding quite quickly to take that that hit to an economy. Is is, is it? You know, there's, there's stories kind of recently you can, you know, they can see from the satellites from space actually yeah. the reduction in the in the amount of pollution that there is and, st- and stuff like that. But being able to move rapidly um, is um, perhaps the plus side of what they what they've been able to do. So it's it's kind of interesting trying to see how the how different societies, how different um, different countries with different political setups will uh, are tackling this differently. We're obviously tackling it in a different way to the Americans are um, are approaching kind of the, you know the current you know, yeah. COVID nineteen kind of situation. So th- there's all those kind of interesting things, but it's. Did you just call it COVID nineteen? No, COVID nineteen. Oh, sorry, no, don't do that. Um, obviously so misheard. No, don't. Static on the line. See, again, you're you're hearing what you want to hear. We're talking about fake news, and then there's the thing about hearing what you want to hear. So it's so it's interesting. So so that I guess there's a so you know the question that we opened with is actually what is the definition? Of, you know what what would we define as fake news? And and different people might have different different definitions of what that would be. Um, but also the other thing is there, there's one element which is the people deliberately disseminating information which they know to be fake or to or to put things in a favourable or unfavourable light depending on what, what they want to do. Um, and that being kind of going further than a little bit of gentle embellishment mm. kind of thing. But on the other on the other side, there is the how are the how's how's Joe public to see through all of that maze? And mm. and you know, I Ivy spoke to that about how how you can kind of look at different sources to kind of see how they're both reporting the same sort of thing to try and come at a come at a, at a reasoned kind of point of view, and you know Craig talking about the you know the tools that can be available to help people find things that um, that don't kind of set them in that echo chamber. So there's there's I, I 
I think kind of the broader thing that we were talking about was also was is this new in the sense of is dissemination of information new? Is well, I, and I think just just to cut in there, mm. you know, if you think about it, you know, I I, I grew up in a in a very left leaning household, so you so know, if you subsidence, well, if you look at the news of the, you know, what newspaper did my dad buy every morning? Mm-hmm. We had the Daily Mirror delivered, and there is an element of. You know, he read the Daily Mirror, and the Daily Mirror reinforced his views as a trade unionist. Mm-hmm. And you know, so there is an element of, uh, you know, w- without the internet, uh, the the papers that you chose to, you know, and again, I'm not going back into ancient history. This sort of yeah. 80s, you know, the paper that you chose to have delivered would would almost be entirely based on your political leanings, you know, if you had such things. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure that it's new at all. The one mm. thing I thought Craig touched on, which you know, which for me was I, I kind of had never struck me that if the search engine little by little ends up just directing you to fewer and fewer places mm. until in the end it directs you to only one place, then we really do have a problem because that that's then becoming a monopoly, isn't it? Yeah, and that's and that's the does that kind of come back to the thing of you 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 were talking to uh, when you were speaking to Craig about um, people want basically stuff on the internet to be free, mm. but that in and of itself causes a problem because someone has to pay for it. Yep. And if you're not the customer, you're the what's the what's the how does the saying go? If you're not the if you're not the customer, you're the product. In the same way that you know, for example, you know, social media, the you know, it's it's free. Yep. Um, so they're making their money some other way by doing something with the data we're providing them, right? Mm. So we're we're not the you know we're not the supermarket with a tin of beans. Oh, spaghetti. I don't want to. I don't want to be a tin of beans. Um, spaghetti no. hoops. How about tin ravioli? How about tin? Oh, and on that ziff by magic. Here comes, here comes Tom Sykes. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Hi, Simon. Yes, it is. It's Simon, and we've got Ian, um, Ian here as well. Hi, um, Tom. Welcome to the Pompey Oh, Politics hello, podcast. Ian, as well. All right. Um, so, so thank Tom, you. No, you, thank you very much for for joining us. So, we we'd invited you on for your for your view, but this is also a, an area. So, what's your? So, if you want to tell our listeners, what's what's your interest in in fake news? Um, oh, I suppose I've I'm wearing sort of three different hats maybe um, in this debate or this discussion because I'm on the one hand one of the founders of Star and Crescent which yep. is a um, people may be aware already is a local independent news culture and commentary um, website and we in in that sort of regard or that role I've been um, I, I, since 2015 when we started we've really um, like any sort of self-respecting media outlet we've always tried to be um you know absolute you know as accurate and as as fair um and as uh you know in our coverage as possible yeah and we've worked with um sources you know we've been very lucky to have to work with lots of um very uh you know intelligent and thorough sources such as jerry brown who i believe appeared on Uh, your um, jerry the inquisitor brown yep Yes, absolutely. And I've worked with him on a couple of stories and we've, you know, he's he's fed us lots of really good information because he's one of these people who um, will take the time to uh, 
do the number crunching and the data analysis and he'll go to all those meetings at the council to um, really make sure that everything that we're being told um, by you know spokespersons for the council is is accurate and so we've been able to sometimes challenge um, not exactly fake news but we, we might get into how we actually define fake news because it seems to me that's quite a broad term that mm. incorporates certain types of spin and propaganda and PR, which is, um, you know, a lot of institutions with a with a with sort of interests and with a kind of reputation to protect would indulge in. Um, so we like to think that Star and Crescent, we've sort of interrogated sometimes the official line when we've suspected that the official line from certain, you know, groups or institutions or individuals in positions of power. Um, uh, has not been trying to be a bit careful and diplomatic about how yeah. I put this, um, <laughs> but uh, you know when we've suspected that they've, you know, perhaps there's, you know, they, that there's been some kind of bias or some kind of yeah. kind of spin. There, there might, there might also, have, might have been mm, too many sprinkles on it. It, it. it looked a little bit too good to be true, which maybe needed a bit more probing. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, which again is something that every every journalist worth their salt should be should be trying to do. Um, but I'm also, uh, in addition to my work with Star and Crescent, I write for the national press quite often. Um, I'm a foreign correspondent, really, um, I suppose is how you describe it. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been writing a lot about the Philippines for um, magazines like Private Eye. I write quite regularly for their foreign section. Um, I've done stuff for, you know, newspapers and magazines in the UK mostly, but, but abroad. And what's happening... What's been happening there over the last three or four years since President Duterte came to power is that he, like Trump, is someone who um, likes to mobilize a lot of uh, fake news and, and propaganda online. And so part of the some of the writing and reporting I've done on the Philippines has been to try and sort of address some of those, um, uh, you know, sort of sort of propagandistic uh, uh, sort of stuff that he's been promulgating. So, I'm, I've, so I've got a kind of local interest in the, and also a kind of in, uh, a global interest in, in the topic. And then the third hat, I, was, I mentioned three hats, and the third one is um, as an academic, I'm also a lecturer at the Portsmouth Uni. I've been uh, interested in um, trying to sort of analyse and understand the whole fake news debate over the last few years. Um, and I suppose the conclusions I've come to there, you know, I would say that actually, if we're talking about propaganda and disinformation and fabrication and distortion, these these are nothing new. Mm. Um, these are not these are not these didn't suddenly appear once the internet was invented or once social media was invented, as you know, as you mm. will know, and your your intelligent listeners will know. Um, so I think there's obviously work to be done. Um, in terms of rooting out the the, the kind of um, stuff online that comes from whether it's you know Russian bots or bots you know from any part of the world really or um, or indeed people you know slightly unhinged young men sitting in their mother's basements in Arizona spreading sort of nonsense about on behalf of Trump you know against the Democrat Party in the U.S. Or we've got to be vigilant about the kind of fake news that's um, <clears throat> emanating from the kind of far frontiers of of the uh, the internet, but I think we also have to be aware when it's coming from the mainstream media. And again, the mainstream media is quite a 
um, you know, a term, that, a sort of debatable term. Because if you think tabloid newspapers, you can't get much more mainstream and legacy mm. and established than that. Tabloid newspapers have been peddling, um, you know, distortions and fabrications and just, you know, since really probably the early 80s when, when the Murdoch era began and you had other um, sort of billionaire moguls like Robert Maxwell coming in and, and buying up these papers and turning them into very kind of sensationalist um, outlets where it seemed to be more, it was more about um, satisfying the reader's kind of rather base yeah. sort of uh, interest in celebrity and gossip rather than actually trying to tell the truth about the world. And um, we can you, also talk about other, yeah, sorry, go yeah. on. <laughs> do, do you think, Tom, though, that that's, that's a function now as, as again, you know, if you we, we touched just before you came on about, you know, if I go back to my parents' generation, they would buy a print newspaper every day, um, mm. and that often the choice of newspaper was was playing to your already political leanings. Um, yeah. Whereas, of course, now because everyone is expecting everything for free, almost the yeah. the the mainstream media, you know, ha has almost had to play to its own crowd to to yeah. to try and get the attention levels which will then you know willing to make advertisers pay for space rather than you know really struggling because the the revenue coming in from print is is falling so rapidly yeah i think that's pretty true i think there's definitely an economic argument an argument about <clears throat> the you know um some of the magazines that i started writing for in the kind of mid to late 2000s when i kind of you know, started freelancing as a journalist don't exist anymore mm. because the, and we we all know about um, all kinds of budgetary and financial problems in you know we read about it unfortunately every day with journalists being laid off and fewer um, you know uh, outlets with fewer journalists expected to cover more and more stories and it and so there's definitely a kind of um, you know there's an interesting concept, a guy called Nick Davies, who used to be a Guardian journalist, but then wrote an excellent book called Flat Earth News, coined this term called churnalism, as in C-H-U-R-N, yeah. right. journalism, which you you know may, may have come across. And this was, he coined this because he was, as a, as a kind of, you know, long-term, long-time veteran journalist in The Guardian, he started to notice this real problem that coincided with the, you know, beginnings of, you know, the sort of digital revolution in, in media and technology, where um, there was less and less money, less and less time uh, given to journalists to actually properly um, fact-check stories, to properly go and interview sources, to properly go and dig around for mm -hmm. information in that way that, that, was, that was sort of, you know, traditionally what journalists were supposed to do. And so... His conclusion was that, you know, I think it's still the case that, that a, a majority, maybe 60, 70 percent of um, all of the content of uh, many, many newspapers is just worked up from press releases. Yeah. It's just basically edited and adapted press releases. Now, he, that for him, that's not journalism or it's not journalism as, as you know, as it, as it should be. And it isn't for me because I think, you know, you obviously, press releases are put out by organizations that usually have a certain kind of um, axe to grind or a certain perspective. Well, they wouldn't they have seen it in a particular light, right? Otherwise yeah. they wouldn't do it. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. 
and um, you know public relations. But, mm. And that and Davies always also warns about the kind of line between public relations and independent journalism having mm. become very very blurred. And I think to go back to Star and Crescent, we and without naming names and without you know wanting to you know start fights with anyone or anything, the reason why we started Star and Crescent was because we looked out across the kind of landscape of. Um, you know, independent, hyper-local online news. And we found that there just seemed to be a few too many of those sites that were just sort of, yeah, recycling press releases and effectively just bigging everything up and sort of, you know, so like, you know, go to this museum, it's great, or go to this shop, it's wonderful, or go... And, they, and to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with, you know, independent businesses and, and you know, operators or promoting themselves obviously that's what what people have to do to make a living yeah. but we just thought that maybe there was space to be a, to, to sort of be a bit more critical and a bit more investigative than, than that you know? yeah and i think that you're absolutely right aren't you it's you know there is an element when you look at uh, you know the 13 best places to eat in portsmouth if that's a story where you have sent you know somebody used to have an excellent um food writer on the star and crescent you know if she's been to i don't know 50 60 70 restaurants and is giving you the 13 best that that's been a job of work with expense yep. and with you know the, the good the bad and the ugly um just yep. going to TripAdvisor, clicking on portsmouth and then cutting and pasting the 13 you know top star ratings or the are you, well the recent example would be not naming a yeah, particular outlet right. would, would be the um, would be the example of literally they've just you know someone's just looked through um, the update of hot food hygiene ratings of you know these are the, this this is the most unhealthy place to eat in Portsmouth or, or whatever you know forget yeah. what the headline was but it, but, but yeah. you know just you know from a content perspective is that do you think, so it's kind of interesting that on one angle you've got a driving down a desire to drive down cost and obviously the largest cost probably for any news organisation is, is going to be, you know, human um, investigative journalism. Um, but at the same time, there's a, we've, we've created a society where we're actually used to an ever increasing amount of content. Yeah. And, and somewhere you've kind of got to, got to, you know, if what you're, if you, if there's this desire to produce and produce and produce and, and just say something, just say something, does the, just the requirement that it's true or just the requirement that you you know you look for and ask those questions like you were saying those you know a bit of that bit of those kind of critical questions is does does that then take a back seat to the desire to just continually be producing or providing content well i i think so yeah i mean unfortunately yeah i think with, with the you know if you look at the amount of information that has just been produced and promulgated today as compared to five years ago, even 10 years ago, certainly 50 years ago, certainly 100 years ago. Um, um, you know, again, there are sort of economic reasons for that. You know, under capitalism, we have to keep sort of producing stuff. And, you know, whether it's commodities, whether it's new cars, whether it's, um, you know, beds or, or food or whatever it is. And so that in itself, I suppose, produces a, you know, there's a demand for it. But I think maybe the, the production has sort of exceeded the demand. I mean, I think, I don't know about you, but I certainly spend far too long just, um, you know, browsing, you know, the internet, looking at all kinds of stories. I like to think of most of them are relevant to the kind of work that I do. And, the, you know, and, and my own writing and a lot of that is research for my own writing and reporting. 
But to be honest with you, I I get sidetracked and I start yep. looking at those mm. BuzzFeed lists, and we all do. It's just it's just sort of um, it's in our nature ad- to do that. It's very addictive, Go isn't on, it? There's yeah. always these big shiny things. That's, yeah, yeah there's, it's really easy to be distracted. Um, yeah, and I mean that's something that I kind of picked up. Um, recently that I, I just suddenly realized that I wasn't looking at news websites anymore. I was getting my content from social media, you know, my news mm. in inverted commas yeah. from social media, which usually was being directed as a comment from someone else. So rather than a, you know, um, reputable news, news um, organization, and, and probably people will have different views as to what reputable might be for some of them, but, yeah. but it, it, you know, that in just that kind of simple change of habit means that, you know, I, I I was avoiding actually, you know, properly researched, you know, um, news articles. But I think the other thing there, and again, if we go back to that print newspaper, the fact is that because you had skin in the game, you had paid for the newspaper, you yeah. would plonk the newspaper on the kitchen table with your mug of tea. And, and you knew what you were getting politically or ideologically. But, yeah. you, but yeah. you'd also, you'd start at page one, and you might skim read some stories, but you would, because you had paid for the newspaper, read the newspaper, you know, sort of almost cover to cover if you had an sp- interest in sport. Get your money's and, worth. And you would get your money's worth. What, you know, whereas yeah. if, if, you, if you look at, you know, and again, if we, we look at the Portsmouth News website, which I tend to um, occasionally, you now get effectively a list of seven or eight headline links at the start on page one and mm. you will you know you'll go eh, eh, eh. oh yeah you know and so there's an element of you know for those the people who are being employed to create the content I, i'm you yeah. know I, i'm maybe reading one in seven stories so it's almost yeah. a little bit you've you've got to overproduce for me or for anybody yeah. consuming the online because if it doesn't you know, if it doesn't light your bulbs up at that on the headline read, you just scroll yeah. on by. Well, I think it's in, it's it, you're absolutely right. I think it's interesting to go back to. I think it was Simon who used the word addiction, and I think mm-hmm. that's quite a crucial point to bear in mind when we think about um, yeah people's consumption of media through social media. You know, consumption of news through social media because. Um, you know, again, there's been some very interesting research into this. I'd recommend a book I read recently by a guy called Richard Seymour called The Twittering Machine, which is a very um, deep sort of critical analysis of social media. It's, it's, it's about Twitter, hence the title, but it's also about Facebook and, and you know, and, uh, and the other platforms. And the sort of, you know, what he what he's found, and I, I think I mostly agree with it, is that, you know, the way that these platforms are set up the way that they're structured and presented um is very much kind of feeds this um you know it's about um you know ensuring that people stay addicted people keep coming Mm. back you know and the likes and the little you know i thought again i'm I'm, i can't i'm trying to detox a little bit from social media but um you know, but I'm I'm as much to you know I'm I'm I, you know I've got sort of skin in this game as much as, as maybe anyone else, and it's you know it's quite insidious the way that those platforms and you know they know what they're doing and they they've done their research into sort of human psychology and they know exactly what they're doing, 
And they know that, you know, people will, they, they use these little tricks, you know, like the like buttons or the little smiley face or the unhappy face buttons that you can click in order to sort of keep people coming back. And mm-hmm. then they'll kind of send you emails if you haven't been on Facebook saying, come back to Facebook. We've got more stuff for you. We've got more content for you. And the problem there is that it becomes, you know, to go back to that whole question of, you know, what's the kind of politics or the morality of this? And the answer is it, it, it's pretty grim because the truth is is that these attempts to try and people like Zuckerberg tr- sort of, you know, turning up and saying, oh, we're going to try and sort of possibly clamp down on mm-hmm. nasty stuff on Facebook. And they don't really mean it. And they're never really going to have to, they're never going to do it themselves. They're going to have to be, it's going to have to be sort of regulated, I think, or legislated for. And the reason why they don't do it, Seymour argues in that book, and I think he's right, is because whatever the whatever happens, whatever whether it's whatever kind of content they've got on, whether it's horrible sort of neo-Nazi propaganda or it's a cat swimming in some custard and people find cute, or whether it's whatever it is, as long as people are watching it and liking it for good reasons or for bad reasons, mm. Facebook keep making money, right? And that's what it's all about. It's about this. That's why it's the twittering machine, or that's why yeah. Seymour uses that kind of machine metaphor because. Yeah, it's it's they make sure it's addictive to us, so we keep using it, and they can keep you know, advertising revenues can keep going up. Uh, something else that I found out um, is that a huge proportion of Twitter's revenue comes directly from Donald Trump's tweets. Again, this is I had to check the footnote in this in the book because I didn't believe it, but it's absolutely right. Someone's done the analysis. So you think that's not a um, you know so that's, that, that's a bit concerning as well, isn't it? <laughs> So well, well, exactly, yeah. 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 So yeah. I guess Tom, one of the questions that w- that we posed earlier is: is do you think the genie is out of the bottle now, and that uh, you know, really, the the only defence against fake news is buyer beware. You know, you, you you have to take a personal responsibility when you're consuming content to, to I validate. I think so. It. I think yeah. I I I'd like you know. I I think there are ideas. Um, like the Media Reform Coalition, I think we've, Star Crescent have worked a little bit with them, have got some ideas for, you know, how we might sort of de- make um, the media more accountable and democratise it to a certain extent, which might help. But I think in, in the meantime, yeah, it is, I think everybody, it's almost like the duty of every citizen, I think, who, uh, it, to be absolutely sceptical um, and to be constantly questioning of, of whatever they read, and that—that's as much. I think the, the the problem here is that I wish it were as easy as just something that is, you know, as I said earlier, that comes from some obscure, you know, middle of nowhere in the mm. in the far front, far flung frontiers of the internet. The trouble is, is where people are rightly, um, or where it gets complicated, and the reason why we have record lows in terms of public trust in the media in the UK and the US, and no doubt it's similar around the world, is because, unfortunately, this fake news, if we look at that, you know, again, look at that term rather broadly to include propaganda and disinformation and, you know, the sort of nastier ends of PR, actually, unfortunately, comes from the very tops of governments. And I'm not just talking about the kind of governments where you'd expect it to come from, maybe Russia and China and North Korea. You know, it's not that long ago, um, your listeners, I'm sure, will remember at least um, the ones who aren't too young. You know, the, 17 years ago, we had, uh, you know, our then prime minister 
uh, Tony Blair lied through his teeth about the uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, uh, weapons of mass destruction. Absolutely right. And unfortunately, there are huge numbers of journalists on both sides of the Atlantic who should have known better and parroted that view in their columns, in their influential columns, and in their, you know, in their writings. Um, more recently, there's been some really um, quite um, concerning research by people like Justin Schlossberg at Birkbeck um, College and also Greg Philo at Glasgow University that have shown that, again, whatever you think of Corbyn, and obviously he's a divisive figure and so on, um, they found that there were just these terrible um, kind of errors of judgment that I would probably fail my first year students for making, made by journalists for the reputable papers, you know, The Guardian, The Times, and indeed the BBC, you know, our broadcasters, mainstream broadcasters, that just totally misrepresented, um, you know, the, the views of Corbyn and the Labour leadership over the, the three or four years that he was in charge, um, that, that, you know, failed to give right to reply to critics um, of Corbyn, uh, of, um, you know, when they sort of critiqued Corbyn, and all kinds of other, um, you know, sort of, as I say, kind of really basic kind of schoolboy um errors and you know you have to sort of then ask the question well how much of that was ideological um in the sense Mm. that you know um if you you know look most columnists for the guardian with the exception of maybe people like owen jones and george monbiot would generally anti-corbyn for those three years and but how much of that is also just and i have a bit more sympathy for people to, to for people who you know might have made mistakes in that regard because of the fact that they're incredibly overworked and they haven't got the resources and they haven't got time to go and get a quote from Seamus Milne or whoever it is that's yeah. supposed to be, you know, on the case with um, representing Corbyn. Say so whatever you think of Corbyn, I think it's it's a worry um, that yeah, you, you you get that kind of misrepresent. We've had those sort of misrepresentations and those those distortions from. Yeah, journalists who should know better. Well, I think the other thing that plays to Tom in 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 my mind is that. And I wonder whether we've almost got into the sort of cartoonization or satire of our political, you know, our political leaders, you know, where, you know, you've got the the Boris persona of the, you know, terribly good Etonian chap bumbling buffoon. You know, you've got a persona created around Jeremy Corbyn, you know, Joe Swinson. Mm. There, there is almost that for every political leader... Now you yeah. have you you know, and again I've been guilty in the past of referring to Nicola Sturgeon as Jimmy Cranky, and you know there is there is almost yeah. an element across the board where we look for the worst the worst bits of all of our political leaders. I think that's true. I think again that's another one of the one of my other interests is is looking at um, stereotypes and how stereotypes might. Um, um, sort of project I'm working on now is um, it's also related to the Philippines and it's really looking at two or three hundred years of journalism and literature uh, it, Western journalism literature and how it has just um, sort of manufactured these kind of stereotypical perspective you know perceptions of um, of Filipinos in the Philippines going back you know you sort of think that might be you might understand that in the the height of kind of colonialism in the mid 19th mm. century but it's still going on now, and I think there is a kind of laziness, actually. That that is—is is it laziness or is it pressure to sort of very give a very quick sort of thumbnail sketch as you know, to summarise, as you say, yeah. you know, Boris Johnson as 
this kind of personal Jeremy Corbyn, that kind of person. And I agree with you. I think, again, it's all part of the same problem of simplifying and looking for, you know, again, whatever you think of those figures, I think you, you should at least sort of show them enough respect to, again, deal with the policies and the content of what they're actually sort of saying and trying to communicate rather than just mm. caricaturing them. Nothing wrong with caric- caricaturing no, no, people we, for we, we comedy purposes, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But, but you're right. I think that's, that's an interesting point that a lot of, yes, supposedly serious coverage does just fall into sort of stereotypes and caricatures, yeah. But it, but it's but see that that's quite interesting because in in some ways that kind of what you see from people's attention spans and um, what we were talking about earlier on is that news organisations have learned that the way to grab attention for prospective readers is you know with clickbaity articles and you know uh, and yeah. But the print media have been doing the same thing with year for years, put, mm. you know, printing you know really salacious yeah. headlines on on their front pages. They know that their circulation went up. Yeah. Other, you know, otherwise, you know, some of the crazy things that you know the Sun and the Mirror and and other mm. news organisations got away with was because, to be honest, their public taught them that actually they 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 benefited from doing precisely that, and in, in, yeah. in a funny way, we've almost we're are we are we teaching our politicians and our news organizations that we don't want detail we want headline um because we're we're demonstrating that we respond to that and therefore um but then we're the losers if we're not actually sticking around to understand you know like you were saying actually to understand mm. the policy so we're mm. always going for the 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 cheap quick headline or the easy way to it i want i want my readers to understand this particular person and an easy way to do that rather than explain what they're for or against is to is to caricature them in in some sort of derogatory way that will help yeah. them very quick very quickly feel whether this is the person for them or whether they like that person or not and it's this i don't know i i find it weird that it's very cyclical mm. that it's yeah it, it's but on you know at the end of the day we're the ones kind of you know as in the, the public are the ones losing out because they're they're not getting the the detail, but it's how do we kind of break that that catch twenty two? Yeah, I mean, I something just as you were saying. I think I think that's 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 very true. But something that occurred to me was that in a way, it's almost like that that approach to um, yeah caricaturing um, people in the public eye. It's not just politicians, I no. suppose. We could yeah. broaden this out, and mm. so, you know, the whole celebrity. Yeah. Um, thing is, is sort of rooted in that, isn't it? Um, but I think it's almost as if that whole approach has now sort of colonised politics itself, hasn't it? Because mm. if you look at the number of people who... Boris Johnson was a journalist, right, yeah. for The Spectator for many years. But he comes out of that kind of world. No doubt, um, I'm not hugely aware... I haven't read a lot of his <laughs> journalism, but... Um, I think, you know, some of it's kind of made headlines in recent years, some of the more bigoted stuff, hasn't it? But, you know, he comes out of that. Michael Gove comes out. He was a, I mean, I remember him back in the 90s on those sort of late night BBC Two um, arts programmes where him and Jermaine Greer and Tom Paulin would have a row about some obscure play in, you know, or something (laughs) on in, on in, you know, Bradford or something. And then... And, you know, so there are journalists going into politics who presumably have been sort of schooled yeah. in that, in the sort of approach that you've been talking about. We've also got a lot of PR people, and these people who have never really done anything outside of mm. politics. Um, 
you know, someone, you could almost say someone like Ed Miliband was part of that kind yeah. of, um, you know, clearly from a young age was hell-bent on becoming a politician. So he learned the whole sort of art of communication and of, and of you know, dealing with the press and with PR and got his way into government and became an MP. So, so yeah, I wonder if um, Catch-22 is even more difficult to break because you know you've now got it's not just the people commentating on politics that are taking that that approach that sort of very broad brush approach but maybe even policy is being created um on the back of you know with that same approach i mean the the all these taglines that we seem to get politicians constantly you know Mm -hmm. sloganeering you know uh, get Brexit done was supposed to have won the last election. I mean, I'm sure yeah. I think there are probably some other factors as well, but you know, it's all about the soundbite, or it has been yeah. for a long time. And we can go back again to Blair, and we can go back to Thatcher, who was, again, I'm no fan of Thatcher, but she certainly had good speechwriters, and you know, the ladies not for turning was a very yeah. powerful slogan. And, uh, you know, Britain isn't working, yeah. whatever the one that they won the 70 election. So yeah, maybe this is this is that kind of mentality has been there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it it, it is fascinating, Tom. That that that, you know, like you say, when you start digging into it, it it's amplified by social media. But you know, it it does yeah. go back. And I remember, I, I was ten in nineteen seventy nine, and I I remember that billboard poster, yeah. you know, with absolute clarity, which was the big long queue of people at the front of a job centre. You know, with Britain isn't working, vote Conservative as the as the tagline, and you know, again, that was probably the first of the of the three word um, you know arrangements, and some of them yeah. have worked reasonably well. And we'll we'll try as a Conservative to gloss over the fact that strong and stable ever existed, because um, that, but I suppose that what didn't go might so well. Give, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose what might give us hope is that I I'm not sure if people. I'm not sure if people have been completely indoctrinated by that approach. You know, I mean, I, I still think personally, I'm sure, and I'm sure you guys, and I know lots and lots of people who, you know, still are interested in in substance and in mm. policies. Mm. And and I think when someone comes along and kind of, um, you know, I mean, it's tempting to sort of talk about Corbyn again. I think when he came along, someone who wasn't terribly interested in, PR and public image and maybe that ultimately he didn't play the game well enough and that's why it didn't work out terribly well for him but there was something refreshing about that that here was someone that um, you know had clear policies clear ideas about how Britain could change and I mean let's not limit this necessarily to the left I think possibly the appeal of someone like Farage even though he's he really knows how to do that kind of sloganeering you know here's someone with a very simple message you know sort of Mm. you know Brexit and, you know, get out of Europe and, um, again, whatever you think of, whatever you agree with that approach or, or not, um, I don't personally, but um, there's, there's, you know, there's still there's still something kind of beyond the slogan there that maybe appeals to people and maybe, so maybe we haven't been completely kind of brainwashed yet i don't know <laughs> yeah. no i there is hope there, there is hope and, yeah, hope. I, hope. Yeah. I, and I think you know from, from from our perspective we'd like to thank you at uh star and crescent you've been a supporter of the podcast and you know again you've even been 
you've even been kind enough to publish a couple of my articles to 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 balance things up. So there is an element. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You'd be most well. The door's always open. You'd that, be most welcome to do it again. I, I, yeah. I have I, I have got a piece of work that I might share with you later, but that's a that's a whole different all issue. Right. Oh, oh I no, see. no, no, it's all right. It's all, <laughs> um, no, and and I think it, it is so important. And and again, one of the things that I think is brilliant about you know star and crescent is that it, it gives a platform to a whole range of voices and you know it, your series on on young people's voices that just a couple of months ago it, yeah. it, you know for people who are prepared to engage and just give it a little bit of time away from those from your normal favorites it does mean you get you get much more of a broad insight into the city and 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 different voices therein, which you know for me is incredibly valuable well thank you very much, and I'm, I'm glad that you know we uh, that was you know very much um, something that Sarah and I wanted to do from the from the outset. We put it in our little kind of mission statement that's on the website, which was exactly as you've said to try and um, you know give give a voice to people who, who don't normally get a look into the media and who, do, who usually don't have a platform beyond just chatting with their immediate friends or maybe putting something on Facebook. Um, and, 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 and I think we've, yeah, that's what has helped us, you know, one of the several things we've been doing that has helped us to kind of, you know, do something unique and, and, and different, hopefully to, 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 um, you know, what else is available in terms of kind of local news. Um, yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I think especially, um, you know, when it comes to issues such as, um, we've done a lot on issues like homelessness. And we've, rather than having someone um, add a remove, sort of report on the home, which we have done you know, yeah. on the homeless situation in Portsmouth, we've also found it quite important to actually um, have people who have experienced that themselves write for us. Um, and, you know, often with some assistance, some sort of editorial yeah. input, mm -hmm. because maybe they're not, they're just not used to writing or they're, they're not very confident in writing um, completely you know, by themselves. And so I think there's, you know, I think that I suppose what you might call reportage as well, people actually reporting in the first person, mm. you know, going somewhere and either being, you know, yeah, and, and maybe having some kind of personal stake in the issue that they're reporting on, I think sometimes is looked down on um, weirdly by, um, uh, I don't know, certain journalists and certain other people in the media because, it's seen as maybe compromising your objectivity or your neutrality. But actually, I think, you know, the history of the journalism would tend to kind of stand against them on that. Because I think, you know, if you go back to some of my favorite um, journalists, uh, what you might have called the new journalism um, of the United States in the 60s and 70s, people like Norman Mailer, Hunter S. Thompson, Joan Didion. These are all people who are now canonized great figures of literature. But they... They were people who absolutely, you know, Hunter S. Thompson wanted to understand um, the whole phenomenon of the Hells Angels bikers group back in the 60s. So he didn't just sit in an office and kind of look up what other people had, you know, written about them. He went and joined the Hells Angels and he got almost beaten to death as a result of that. And he got invited <laughs> to the parties. And I'm not suggesting, I'm not recommending that everyone no, has no, to go no. that far. But, but, you know, there's something to be said for that. For, you know, having that sort of participatory approach, and that's why we've always tried to have a balance. People, yes, by all means, try to look at it 
fairly objectively or, or critically from a distance, but then people who have actually sort of been through, have actually been on the business end of these issues, whether austerity or homelessness or uh, domestic violence is something else that we're, you know, we've, we've been proud to sort of cover. Well, not proud to cover, proud that it's a, 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 a you know, in that sense, but we've raised, uh, you know, hopefully kind of, um, you know, covered that issue to, to, to quite a, you know, to quite an extent. Brilliant. But I think, I think that is something good in how, in how you operate is it because you're providing people that can speak with authenticity, that voice to be able to, to actually do it that yeah. way so that, you know, um, you know, you, you know, in, so that any form of kind of journalism or any kind of, um, you know, written word in, in those sorts of sense aren't a barrier to people being, you know, regardless of whether they thought that, you know, their, their story is, you know, in the day, but their ability to write shouldn't be a barrier to other people hearing their story. Mm, definitely. And I, th- I think that's really powerful. Um, well, so if other people well, want... I, I think... Sorry, yeah, sorry, no, I was going to say, I'm just further to that. I think that's really important. I think, you know, I'm very sort of unromantic about the whole notion of, um, you know, writing to a certain extent. Obviously, I think it's very important. <laughs> but I think this idea that writers or, or professional writers or academics or journalists have to be put up on some pedestal, yeah. um, that they necessarily, um, their opinions necessarily count more than, I don't know, an electrician's or someone yeah, yeah. who's homeless on the street sponsored. I've never really had much truck with that. So I think actually, you know, which is why very often the best story, you know, some of the best stories that we've, we've published are by people who have never actually really, you know, written anything um, before, but they've got a really important story to tell. You know. Perfect. Tom, been absolutely brilliant. And thank you for coming on and, uh, and contributing and long may the, the great work of Star and Crescent continue. Thank you so much, Simon and Ian. And can I just say that um, you've been very kind about Star and Crescent, but, you know, your podcast is also a really important resource for people who want to understand what's going on locally, politically. I think it's a really valuable thing, and I'd long may that continue as well. And it'd be nice to speak to you again um, at some point in the future. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. We love a willing guest. Very kind of you to say so, but yeah. Brilliant. We'll, we'll keep Excellent. we'll keep we'll keep podding on as they say. Absolutely. Or as I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. All right, thanks, fellas. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Bye um, now. Bye. Thank Bye. you. And um, so that was uh, Tom Sykes, who's uh, from Portsmouth um, media organisation Star and Crescent. And if you want to read more of their their content, then you can get hold of that at Star and Crescent dot org dot uk, or you can easily follow them on Facebook. Absolutely. What a show that's been. That has, we've, we've, we've overrun. A lot. We've overrun. Horribly. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, we, we could have probably done double that length. So it was great to have people to, uh, you know. And again, we've got we actually got the next few weeks booked up. But, yeah. you know, if you have a topic that you are passionate about and you're local or even not local, you're just listening, we, we don't mind, then get in touch via the Facebook page um, or send us an email at pompeypoliticspodcast gmail.com um and we would love to to hear from you and uh i think that's us done for the day millsy's millsy seems keen here yeah i I think think he's 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 ready to roll get his point across so thank you very much for um staying on but yeah we've we've packed in we probably were too ambitious to pack so much in but um really really good thank you very much to our to our guests which were ivy burrows uh, to Craig Stadler and to uh, Tom Sykes. That's fantastic. Um, thank you all of, all of you for spending so much time with us. 
Uh, and thank you very much uh, for listening, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I'm still Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm still Simon Sansbury. Marvellous. <laughs>